I don't know about you, but I think they've lived up to their name. Uh, we've covered pride and envy and, and greed and anger and sloth and gluttony, and now we're at lust. And as I think about lust, trying to, trying to draw a picture of it, I've been reminded of that bull running, you know, that they're doing right now in Spain. And um, In fact, a couple of Americans, I think, were gored. Um, you know, the idea is that there are hundreds of people that have a degree of questionable intelligence and they get in front of 12 very large animals, six of which have these things at the end of their head, and um, a horn blows and they take off running and then the gates are opened and then the bulls go following behind them. And, um, and the idea is to lead them into the stadium where they will, of course, face bullfights later, or they'll have the bullfights. And when you ask the people about this experience, they say it's a rush, it's a thrill, it's exciting, it's engaging, it's an adventure. And, you know, in many ways, lust offers those same things. We just forget that there's the bulls behind us that want to run us over and, and gore us, that there's a deep, deep danger. That's why they're the deadly sins. They seek to kill our relationship with God and with each other. And ultimately, ultimately, the irony is that they seek to kill us. They, they, they seek to, to be a parasite until we die. So I'm going to follow the same pattern as I have with these other sins that we'll look at the nature of it, what is it, and then we'll look at the, uh, how does it manifest itself in your life? Because it will look different in different people's lives. And then we'll look at how the strategy is to put this thing to death. So first, what is it? Well, you see in Jesus' text, as he's dealing with the Pharisees, the Pharisees had a minimalist view of Scripture. Uh, They looked at adultery, the simple act of adultery as sexual sin. And Jesus is going to, he's going to change or at least challenge their views. Notice as he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Uh, Now, adultery, strictly speaking, is having sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. It's a seventh commandment. Now, before you think God might be a killjoy here, um, remember, it's God who instituted marriage. God created the man and God created the woman in the covenant of marriage. That God has made us sexual beings. That God has given us the sexual desires that we have. They're good, they're right, they're natural. God has designed for our sexual desires to bring the husband and wife together so that we would have a union unlike all unions. That, that he's, he's designed that sexual intimacy be for our human flourishing as well as the continuation of humanity. So it's a gift that God has given to us to be able to have intimacy with our spouse as a reflection of his goodness to us. So this prohibition that you hear is for our good. I mean, adultery poisons a divine union. I I, I press any of you to find a person who can advance the benefits of adultery. If you've ever sat with a man or a woman whose spouse has been unfaithful, you will see in their brokenness the goodness of the command. It's a good command. It's a tearing apart of one flesh. It's not surprising that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, he prohibits divorce. 
except for the causes of marital infidelity. Why? Because it rips apart so deeply something so deep. But Jesus is going more than saying sexual sin is just adultery. Notice what he says, but I say to you. Now listen, that would be the most arrogant thing for any of us to say if he weren't the Son of God. But he's going to deepen this command. See, again, the Pharisees were minimalists, so they took the law and they tried to reduce it to its minimum. So sexual sin was committing the act of adultery. You know, the the minimalist. And and the reason they were minimalist is because if you keep the lowest amount, you get the greatest gain. You feel righteous. You feel honest. You feel, hey, I'm right with God because I haven't committed adultery. Jesus is going to challenge that. And he says this, he says, But I say to you, anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus deepens this idea of adultery, not to simply be in the act of the sin, but even in the intention and the desire. In other words, what lust is, is it's a disordered desire. It's trying to find an excessive pursuit of sexual pleasure apart from a covenant that has honor and sacrifice and self-giving in it. It twists our human sexuality uh, from being this mutual self-giving to being simply the gratification of self. It, lust, reduces, lust reduces sexuality down to the physical act alone. It tries to make sex really a party for one. So as opposed to self-giving and, and, and love, it's simply about my personal gratification. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis, and I'll quote him a few times because he wrote much on it and he wrote very insightfully. He says, and, uh, and I want you to understand what he's saying here. It's in the context of adultery, but it applies to lust. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one sexual union from all other kinds of union, which are meant to go along with it and make up the total union. The Christian attitude doesn't mean that there's anything wrong about sexual pleasure. It means that you mustn't isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself any more than you ought to try to get the pleasure of taste without swallowing and digesting by chewing things and spitting them out again. So it's keeping them together. So when, if you're married... You know, is your marital intimacy marked by lust or love? Is it marked by self-giving or self-serving? If you're single, how do you understand your sexuality? How do you understand the role of intimacy to be in marriage? What are your expectations? And if you're not a Christian, then please don't hear me speak about our sexuality in any sort of prudish way. Not at all. In fact, I think Jesus steers a beautiful path here through eroticism, which is sex for sex's sake, and asceticism, which is the body's evil, and sex, therefore, is, is to be endured rather than enjoyed. He steers a clear in celebration, uh, but, but it's a celebration of the way he's designed it. So lust, or sexuality, the way God's designed it, has natural limits. It, it has a certain per, set of parameters around it by which we enjoy it. To try to enjoy the sexual intimacy that God has created outside of the categories that God has given it to us in is to abuse it. It's to make it disordered. A hammer works great for a nail. It doesn't work good to replace glass. 
you know, to, to use it outside of what it's designed to do, it doesn't, it doesn't work well for you in the, in the end. And, and so lust is that disordered desire that seeks, that seeks to try to achieve its own pleasure. Remember, even as Joel prayed, we seek to reign. And so what lust does is it's the person wanting to create their own sexual experience. We don't want God to define it for us. We want to define it and enjoy it on our terms, in our way, when we want. So it's an act of cosmic insubordination to God. So that's what lust is, a disordered desire for sexual pleasure outside of the covenant that God has established where love and honor and joy are to be. Okay, secondly, what, is, what does it look like in your life? How does it appear? Well, it's like a chameleon, frankly. It's a progressive chameleon. It changes. It may begin with delight, but it ends up being deadly. It, it may start, for example, and it will progress, by the way. It may start as just simply fantasies. Just you're creating scenes in your mind of sexual pleasure that you enjoy. It may be you're in the gym and you're working out and a woman comes in and she's dressed very provocatively. And in your mind you're thinking... What if I could only have her? And your mind goes there, and it begins to turn over the idea. Or perhaps you're a woman, and you notice the absolute sensitivity of another woman's husband, and your husband has the sensitivity of a dump truck, and you think, if only I could have him in my life. See, remember, fantasies don't have to be sexual in nature. They can be romantic. I want this type of romance, or, or I, I want this type of body. I regularly watch women watch other women, and I've shared this with you before, that when an attractive woman walks in, it's not the other men that are always lusting over her, it's other women. And they do this barcode scanner thing. They start at the top, look at the hair, the dress, how she's walking, down to the shoes, back up again, just to make sure they have a full understanding of, and, and there's a lusting after her body or her life or her house or whatever. So, so lust begins in terms of the fantasies of our mind. It begins in the heart where our imagination is. And, and then, of course, it moves. You have to feed that monster. You have to feed that machinery. So the eyes are the windows of your heart. And so then lust moves into the eyes where we begin to look at things. It may be the steamy romance novel. It, it may be the movie that always portrays the perfect love scene that always ends in a way that is absolutely unreal. Or it may be straight-up hardcore. It may just be pornography, movies and pictures. You know, it is a bit of a pandemic right now. I, I really want you to understand it. Recent surveys show that 87% of males in college visit porn sites every week, and 30% of females. In fact, 70% of all porn is viewed from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. I mean, if that's not a warning for employers to look at what are their people looking at while at work. 12% uh, of all sites on the web are porn. 66% of men from 18 to 34 visit porn sites once a week. So, so I, I can just inundate you with data. It's incredible. But, but those pictures, those movies, those scenes fill the imagination, which then just creates me to have free reign in fantasy land. But, you know, it won't stop there. It will move forward into the act, right? So the, the, the mind or the heart 
sees these images, begins to play them out, and then it always comes out in the body. And this is why lust is a capital sin, because it gives birth to other sins. It gives birth to sins of adultery, of prostitution, of, of envy, of greed, of anger, leading to murder. <clears throat> we create an enslavement by allowing lust to grow free. Augustine, the church father in in the, and I say church father because this is the really considered the generation of those who followed the apostles. A few hundred years after the apostles, they began to write more deeply about the faith. And he said this. He says, It was no iron chain imposed by anyone else that fettered me, but the iron of my own will. The enemy had my power of willing in his clutches, and from it, forged a chain to bind me. The truth is that a disordered lust springs from a perverted will. When lust is pandered to, a habit is formed. When habit is not checked, it hardens into compulsion. These were like the interlinking rings forming what I had described as a chain. So this idea of being bound to it. Now, I I know some of you may object, and, and there may be the objection. Well, you know, if nobody's getting hurt, what does it really matter? Well, that's really a kind of a dangerous question unless you know that no one's getting hurt. And in fact, one Frederick Beekner, I've quoted him throughout this series because he's written on these theological ideas. He says, the trouble is that human beings are so hopelessly psychosomatic in composition that whatever happens to the soma or the body, whatever happens to the body also happens to the psyche or the mind and vice versa. Who is to say who gets hurt and who doesn't get hurt? And how? Maybe the injuries are all internal. Maybe it will be years before the x-rays show up anything. So how can we say that no one is hurt? Or another objection might be, uh, well, it helps me not move into sexual sin. So, So lusting and pornography is beneficial for kind of keeping me at bay, so to speak. Well, it may surprise you that that was actually the rhetoric argued by Larry Flint, who was the editor of Hustler magazine, which was hard porn when I was growing up. And and his argument was that pornography is doing a public service because it's keeping people from acting out on their lusts. He he says it's like a a steam valve on a boiler. The problem is the data doesn't support it. In in fact, lust decreases the sexual... um, the level of sexual satisfaction in your intimacy, that lust leads to desensitizing against cruelty of of women, treating women poorly. It it also lowers the view of women, and it removes us from the desire for real relationships because we move into a virtual reality, that I'm living through the, the scene. So the evidence doesn't support that contention. Remember, the lust, it, it will just spiral downward. When Rachel was younger, we, um, I took her on a field trip, and we went to an arboretum, and there was this Venus flytrap. It was a beautiful plant, and um, you know how they work. They have these kind of tentacles or these fibers that are sweet. It's beautiful to look at. and Of course, the insect moves to it and sees it and finds the sweetness to be enticing and begins to gorge itself. Uh, when it lands, of course, it finds these tentacles to be very, very sticky, and so it begins to try to wiggle its way out as the plant begins to close on it. The problem is, is as they've watched these, the, the insects, even though they're struggling to get out, continue to drain the sweetness. They won't let go of the sweetness to save themselves, and then the plant just closes around them. 
and they perish all the while trying to enjoy the sweetness. This is a dangerous thing. I mean, this is not a theoretical danger. This is an existential danger. Your existence comes into play here. I mean, it's dangerous at a lot of levels. You know, let me remind you of a few weeks ago, I talked about how you know, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commands, but they're both, they're both injured by this sin, lust. It seeks to dishonor God. It seeks to really dethrone God. Let me explain what I mean. When you take God's gift of sexual intimacy and we usurp it and engage in it with purposes of our own making, we are being mutinous to God. We're being cosmically treasonous to God. We're saying, I know you made it for this, but I am now going to take it and I'm going to utilize it for this. It dishonors God. It turns his gift into something, an object of worship for us. But it does more than dishonor God. It dethrones God. And let me explain what I mean. Have you ever heard that expression? Often people attribute it to G.K. Chesterton, but it was actually it was a British essayist, but it was actually Bruce Marshall, I think he was actually Scottish, and he said this, that every man who rings the bell at a brothel is unconsciously seeking God. The idea is that sexuality, so Dorothy Sayers, another British essayist, said that two reasons we lust. One is that we have animal instincts. We do. We have these sexual desires that drive us and we want to see them satisfied. But the second reason, she said, is because we're bored. We're bored with life. We want something more. We want transcendence. We live in homes without skylights. We live every day of our lives with little thought to God, and we're bored with life. And so the pursuit of lust, the pursuit of the sexual experience, the high that you get is so exciting. It's the one stab at transcendence, to get near to God. It's pursuing God. We want to have that divine experience. And so we're pursuing it, but we're doing it through means of our own making, whether it's drugs or sex. We want the high that takes us outside of ourselves. We want transcendence, and it dethrones God. It replaces God. That's the danger. You become, you, you make sex into a divine experience. And not just that. It doesn't just dishonor and dethrone God. It also destroys our relationship with our neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. Your neighbor is your closest, your wife is your closest neighbor. And, and for a spouse to be moving towards pictures and images and movies in lustful fashions. It is to violate the covenant that you have made to be pure with your spouse. It brings all kinds of fracturing in for the spouse. I was once uh, given a letter from a dear friend, a woman who had faced this with her husband. And here's what she wrote, and I asked permission to share this. Here's what she wrote. It feels like I'm riding on the bow of a smooth, sleek sailboat in a stiff wind cutting through the waves. The sun is shining brightly and the sky is brilliant blue. The water sparkles in the sunlight. Then without warning, I'm plunged headfirst over the side into the murky deep. I'm disoriented as I try to figure out which way is up. My lungs start to burn. I'm desperate for air. I struggle to swim to the surface. The pain of the reality of your husband... Pursuing sexual pleasure while watching frame-by-frame images of other women feels like drowning. 
the betrayal, the trust broken, the disregard, the deceit, and the oneness shattered are as waters rushing into your lungs, making breathing impossible. This is just one testimony of how your spouse feels and understands life when a man has looked at porn and then tried to walk out a covenant of marriage with them. But it doesn't just destroy the neighbor in terms of your spouse. It affects all of us in here. I mean, the community of faith is affected by the lustful outworking in your life. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, Each of you ought to know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, so that no one transgresses or wrongs his brother in this matter. In other words, the sin of one affects all of us in this family. And it affects us deeply. But, but even go beyond. So go further out in terms of how to define your neighbor. How about the object of lust? How about the woman or the man that you're lusting over? I mean, they're an image bearer of God. They're someone's son or daughter or sister or aunt or mother. I mean, they, they're a human being made in the image of God. And yet we turn them into machinery. We turn them in, in, into instruments. They become subhuman to achieve the purposes that we have for them. We make them less human. So you, you see how it dethrones God. It destroys our relationships with others, but it also ultimately destroys us. It dehumanizes us. Think about it. When men move from leaders to lecturers, from servants to consumers, and, and takes women who are co-heirs, according to 1 Peter, and co-partakers of the divine grace of God, makes them instruments and tools. It, it, it makes us quite like animals, which, as I remember reading in Genesis, were the highest point of his creation. But not just that, it denies us the actual pleasure. This is the irony of sin. This is the absolute deception of sin is that it denies us the actual pleasure we're seeking. I, I mean, this is what one author called the pleasure paradox. That when you try to seek pleasure, when you try to use sex purely for pleasure, you don't get it. But when you seek to serve your spouse in love and a covenant of faithfulness, you get the pleasure. In other words, you know, it's when you're going for it that you don't, Get it, but when you, when you seek to serve and love and self-giving measure to the spouse, then the pleasure is yours. That's how God designed it. And this is borne out. In survey after survey, those who have the highest rating of sexual satisfaction are those in monogamous, committed relationships. The going from one to the other, the moving from, from person to person, it does not provide the same level of satisfaction, and they don't end up having sex as often as the monogamous committed couple does. It's a great irony. In fact, pornography doesn't just reduce your sexual pleasure, but studies have come to show that it causes an increased percentage of men struggling with ED. They struggle actually having sex after viewing pornography over, over time. But not just that, it also desensitizes us to the Spirit of God, that lust causes God to seem far, far away. His promises and his presence and all that he offers seems unreal to us in the, in the stupor of our lust. It, it, it numbs our souls, but it doesn't just numb our souls. It actually seems, at least from the text, to threaten our own salvation. 
It threatens our salvation. Look at what Jesus said. He said, if your right eye caused you to sin, cut it out. If your right hand caused you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter the kingdom, or he's saying it's better to lose one of the members than enter hell. In other words, he seems to be threatening hell. Now, he's obviously not advocating self-mutilation, right? If I take out my right eye, my left eye can lust just fine. He's trying to show us the seriousness of this issue and the danger of failing to deal with it. It threatens our salvation. Now, if you're here and you're saying to me, are you saying I can lose my salvation? Well, I would say to you, if you even ask that question, you've already created a dichotomy between my salvation and my life. My belief and my enjoyment of knowing that I'll be with God forever has to have impact on my life. The, the, the one that is saved is the one that's pursuing holiness. You know, the faith that saves from hell is the faith that moves us to fight sin and to repent when we fail. We, we don't fight sin and pursue holiness so that he'll love me. We fight sin and pursue holiness because he has saved me. So the salvation is an encouragement to move toward this. So it, it dethrones God, it, it denies us, it, uh, it denies our relationships, and ultimately it destroys us. I mean, do, do you get the seriousness of this? You know, back in 2003, you probably read the article. It was pretty fantastic, and I mean by that just you know, incredible story about a man, uh, a mountain hiker, who was going through these canyons in, in Utah. I forget the name of the canyon, but he was going through this three-foot passageway. His name was Aaron Ralston, and is somehow moving through it. His arm got stuck, and he couldn't move. He couldn't dislodge his arm. He was stuck there for days. One day, two days, three days, four days. After four days, he ran out of water. And, uh, and by the sixth day, he knew he was, he was gone. So he took out a pocket knife and he cut off his arm. I think it was at the elbow. He cut off his arm. Why? Because he knew he would die. Okay, when faced with death or losing an arm, what do you choose? You choose the arm every time. I'm going to go with cutting off the arm. So that, that's what the scriptures are calling us to do, to, to realize it's that kind of level of intensity. So what does it mean to pluck out an eye or to cut off a hand? So we've looked at what lust is. It's that disordered desire. It's that disordered, excessive, maybe for the wrong reasons, the wrong time, the wrong person, that sexual desire. How does it look? It begins in the mind, the heart. It begins at the heart. The eyes feed it, right? And then it ends up acting out, ultimately, in some measure, in some way. And the danger is, you've heard, it dethrones God, it it destroys our relationships with one another, and it ultimately destroys us. So what do we do? Well, I want you to consider two things here. One is going to be we have to think and we have to believe in one way, and then there are certain practical things we have to do. So it's spiritual and practical. I want to give you both. Now, there are other, there is so much material on practical means and measures. We have a couple links on our website that we've posted for you. Uh, to look at if, if you want. I'm just going to touch on a few of them. But first, let me get your minds right and, and get your heart postured right in terms of the first path is developing uh, and holding on to a firm spiritual belief. Think about what Jesus said. He said, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart. So the heart is the issue, people. The heart is the issue, right? That's the source of pollution. If you're just trying to keep your body free from sin, you will be toast. It begins in the heart. 
So, you know, the issue of sin, sins that we commit, they're just symptoms. They're just symptoms. The disease is the heart. That's why the scriptures say we have to be born again. Now, if you're a Christian here, <clears throat> overcoming lust, if you're a Christian, overcoming lust begins with reminding yourself that you have been forgiven in Christ. You have to remind yourself of justification. Many of you will be in here and you're going to look at others in this room and you're going to think that Jesus can carry their sins because they're not that bad. But when you look at your life, you're going to be weighted down. You are overwhelmed. Yeah, but I did this and I did this repeatedly. And you often can fall into this false understanding that somehow my sins are too heavy for him to carry. Overcoming lust begins with understanding our justification, with understanding that, yes, we have been forgiven, that even your sins, as great as they may be to you, he is sufficient to carry them. And Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. This is fantastic news. He did not come to help good people get better. He has come for the worst to save them, and that will bring him the greatest glory, and you will be filled with the greatest happiness when you understand that. That we think he has come where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's the way God's going to do it. Nobody's going to think, he aided me in my deliverance. Every one of us on that side will say, he delivered me, he rescued me. I love what Martin Luther encourages people to say. He says, you know, those of us who forget, we keep looking at our past and we keep wanting to drag. Well, you know, and what that does is it helps us make a segue back into sin. He says this, practice this knowledge. This is what Martin Luther says. And fortify yourself against despair, particularly in the last hour. When the memory of past sins assails the conscience, he says, say with confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. So just remind yourself, he has saved me from the penalty of sin. He has forgiven me. And what happens is your heart begins to swell with affections for one who has delivered. The rescue operation was effective. He has delivered you. If you're not a Christian here, this is where it means that we must be born again. The heart has to be changed. To try to control the external issues in life is insufficient. The heart has to be renewed. It has to be made new. That's why the promises in the Old Testament of Jesus were to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, a heart that wants to move towards God, that wants to repent against sin, for sin. And that's what, for the non-Christian, that we ask Jesus Christ to come into our lives, to change us, to make us new, to forgive us of our sins, and then give us the strength to walk after him. That's what it means to be born again. It isn't some, some mystical experience. It's recognizing you're a sinner. You need deliverance. Jesus, deliver me. Okay, the, the second thing I want you to consider in terms of faith is that you don't just believe that he has forgiven you of your sins in the past, but that he's going to give you power over sin in the present. That he's going to help you fight sin. See, many of you don't realize, but in the cross of Christ, the dominion of sin was broken. The mastery of sin over the soul was broken. Now, many of us see the cross as forgiving us of sins, but we don't see it as breaking the power of sin. So let me read you from Romans chapter 6. 
Paul writes, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. For sin shall not be your master because you're not under law but under grace. The Christian in overcoming lust has to be reminded you're not under law. You're not under law, you're under grace. That does not give you license to then have at it but it lets you know you can now fight sin. You can now say no. Sin doesn't master you. You can't say the devil made me do it. You can't say I was forced to do it. The Christian has the capacity through the Spirit of God to say no to sin. John Owen adds, he says, sin may fight, may tempt, may perplex us. It may surprise us into actual sin, but it has no dominion in us. We are in a state of grace and acceptance with God. This doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means that through the Spirit of God, as we apply the Word of God, that we can say no, we can turn from sin. There are many saints in here that have a history of doing just that, turning from sin. You have to believe that. Otherwise, you're just subject to the whims of your own desires. And then thirdly, about what you need to believe, that Jesus died for my sins, I'm forgiven, that Jesus has crushed the power of sin over me. Sin still indwells me, and I still have a battle. But I have the Spirit dwelling within me, which now over can, can empower me to move beyond sin. But thirdly, we have to have the hope. In other words, what Jesus has done in the gospel is he has given us a hope of future glory. This is really important. It's really important. Lust, illicit lust, uh, leads us into believing the false promises. If you get this person or if you do this, then you're going to really be happy. You're going to have that experience. And you know how we all feel. Every one of us, you feel disgusted and you feel despairing because you gave way again. The future hope of being in glory with Christ is to be a draw. It's like a magnet to steal. It's to draw you to itself that the pleasures of God that are at his right hand are for us, that the promises of God, that the joy in Christ, that future glory. So folks, you have to look in the mirror. You have to remind yourself, I am aging. I am moving toward that day. That day will be better than this day, that the joys promised to me in this day cannot compare with the joys in that day. If you don't have that future hope, it's a real slugfest. Because the joys and the desires and the, and the promises of today will be too great. Listen to what one author said. The world is littered with the debris of what erotic love has promised, but unable to provide. But can God not give us that joy? He created what we're pursuing. So he can give us that joy. That's why Lewis says, Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. So we want to put lust down so that our desires can be freed. Tim Keller adds to it, and I think he's following Lewis. He says, if you give God your sexual desires, they will be reborn. They'll be reborn. So, so that's what we need to think regarding Christ. He died for the penalty of my sins. He's, he's crushed the power of sin. And now he's giving me a future hope of glory. Let me go practical for a minute. This is the other side now. The practical is we do have to deny ourselves these, these passions. You know, this is what the older theologians called mortification. We have to put to death 
these passions that we have. Perhaps it's with your eyes. You, you love to look at things. Well, Job says, I've made a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully upon a woman. You look to the ground. These are practical measures where you have to make war with the sin. As Joel prayed again, if you're not fighting it, if you're not killing it, it's going to be killing you. You can't go places. This, this putting to death is what Jesus means by cutting off and plucking out. You have to act as if they don't exist. Maybe that means, you know, putting locks on your computer, getting a net nanny, or covenant eyes, or some of these programs that will either prevent you or alert others if you begin to stray. But that's the putting off. We can't feed the monsters. So if it's alcohol for you that leads you into it, or if it's magazines, or if it's the gym, or if it's going to certain clubs, or whatever, you, if those things precipitate greater lust that moves you forward, you just have to say no. I don't know if it's for the rest of your life or if it's for two weeks, but, but you have to put those things to death. But you also have to feed the new man. You also have to cultivate the grace of God in your life through Scripture and through accountability and through relationships. So that's the first thing, the putting off and the putting on. The second thing is you have to cultivate a greater desire for community. Listen, there is no one in here that will follow Jesus alone. Uh, lust is too strong, it's too great of an enemy. You, you can't do it. You have to be in vital relationships with people in your local church. There has to be vulnerability. That is such a, we give such a, yeah, we give, throw so many props to vulnerability, but we don't do it. Does anybody really know you? If you think that you can listen to podcasts and you can do ministry and you can read books but not be intimately known by others, you're on a fool's errand. It's inadequate. If you're not known by people intimately, you've you're, you got a tough road ahead. God doesn't reward heroic individualism in your Christian life. He calls you into a church, into a family. And don't go, please, for a minute, don't go universal church with me. Local assemblies are where you're worshiping with people to pop in and pop out. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. No one is sanctified alone. It's in the community. So I want to encourage you to consider what engagement do you have? Are you in a care group? Do you have friends within this body that know you beyond just the superficial sharing of information. Because if you don't, you're really running a real high risk. It's going to be a tough go for you. Now, I, I, so, so that's true. Now, let me, let me boil down a little bit more. If you're married, I, I want to encourage you today or tomorrow uh, to speak with your spouse about these things. You know, women, you should be able to ask your husbands, are you struggling with lust? It is not an indication of your beauty or of their attractiveness to you if they say they struggle. You, you got, I know Carol and I have had this discussion a thousand times. She has done unbelievable. She'll always ask me, how'd you do at the gym? I, I welcome that. That is not an intrusion into me. It's a help to me. But, but, but you cannot take a man's struggle with sin as an indictment of your own person. But I want to encourage you, talk about it. Are you serving one another? Are you loving one another? Are you exercising love to one another in terms of self-giving intimacy? This ought to be a conversation. If you wonder if this is kind of not Bible language, go read the Song of Solomon. I mean, it's very clear that they were very open and vulnerable with one another. If you're, if you're married and you have children, 
I encourage you to speak to your children about this. If you're young, and uh, particularly if you're a young man, speak to your parents. This is where I'm struggling. This is, there's nothing wrong with it. Every man in this room would identify with what you're saying. If you're single, are you in relationships that, that, are, that are loving relationships? And what I mean by that, loving in a way that I'm sacrificing for one another. You know, Lewis, and I'll just I'll conclude with this, he says that it's love that conquers lust. Love conquers lust. It, it, it's loving relationships that we are to engage in, whether it's vulnerable and transparent. And you can't be transparent with every single person in here, obviously. But there are those, those spheres of relationships that you have that need to be marked by deeper intimacy. But it's a godly intimacy uh, that allows love to thrive, and it will conquer lust. So this has been a, a heavy sermon, I know, for you to hear. It's been challenging to preach. Um, you know, lust is that disordered desire. Assess yourself with a wife or a husband or with a friend. Are your desires, are they ordered? Are you walking out as God intended? And, and where does it appear in your life? And then are you engaging? Do you believe rightly on Christ? And are you exercising these practical methods that are helpful to us? They won't solve the problem, but they will go a long way to help the problem. So uh, let's just take a minute now, and, and uh, it might be a time for you to just, where are you on this whole issue? You might be terrified and think, I couldn't speak to my spouse on this issue at all. And I, I would just... If that's in your mind, then ask him for grace. You can. You can. You should. I'm asking you to ask for grace for that. And then I'll close this in just a moment.